It seems to me, and it may seem to you as you look around at the Christian world today, that much of what passes for Christendom and for Christian lives and Christian living doesn't look much different than what passes for non-Christian lives or non-Christian living. That there are many Christians who live as if they've never experienced the grace of the gospel. That's what their life reflects. And I wonder how many of us might fall into that trap sometimes. I wonder how many of us fall into the traps like we believe that God is sovereign in our mind, but in our life, we act as if we're in control. We believe that he's sovereign, but in our life, we fear men. We fear news media and politicians and government overreach and all the things that we're, we agree together that are not good, but we fear them. We're anxious over them. Our head says God's sovereign. Our heart and our lives act as if he's not, that he's not really in control. Our head believes that God has made promises, and we know those promises, and yet our life is lived as if he hasn't made those promises. Our head understands the gospel and the freedom we have from sin and the call to holiness and the road of sanctification, but our lives say things like, I know what God says, but this is the way he made me. He made me like this, so I'm anxious because he created me this way. Maybe we know what he says about the gospel And we can help other people fight sin, but we don't fight sin in our own life, like Luke talked about this morning. We want to make sure that as we're learning all of this sufficiency of Scripture for discipleship, that we don't forget that the first disciple is ourselves. That we learn how to help others, and we turn into sin sniffers for everyone else, but in our own life, the logs are still in our eyes. You see, all of those are marks that we're living as if the gospel wasn't true. Do you see that? Isaiah wants us to understand that the gospel is true and it has an effect in our lives. That if we are those who call upon the name of a holy, holy God and his son, the, the, the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came and lived and died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father, if we are calling on his name, then our lives should look that way. And Isaiah doesn't want us to escape that. He doesn't want the people in exile in Babylon to escape that. Even though they are in exile and they're suffering and they don't see any light, he wants them to know they're there for a purpose. He's still working out redemption for his people and he calls them to walk in light of that redemption. And the whole New Testament does that for us. The whole New Testament calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To walk as if we know the God who saved us. To walk as if we're on the path of pursuing holiness, our own sanctification that God provides for us and that we work in. Remember, sanctification is that that one part of the chain of salvation that we are very active in. We, We are constantly crucifying sin and pursuing Christ. Now, we can't do that unless we've received the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we've received that grace and we're not doing that, there's a misfire and we are living like the world. So, where are you today? How does your life reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ? And how does it not reflect it? Where in your life are you in your mind embracing and knowing certain things about the truth of the gospel, but as it works out into your life, you look like your lost neighbor's? That's the question before us this morning. Isaiah wants us to answer it and to answer it in Christ because this is where we're heading, are we not? We're heading into that fourth servant song that is both surprising and majestically glorious at the same time. So as we finish up leading into that fourth servant song, our hearts and minds need to be open to those areas that we are not awake to the truths of the gospel in our life because they are a reality for us and they bring glory to God when he works them out in our life. So just lay our lives before the Lord this morning and let him reveal that. The end result is good, is it not? 
Because if he reveals things to us where we're not living according to the gospel, where we're letting the gospel be on our lips and in our minds, but not in our heart and not in in our lives, then that is love toward us, is it not? That is God disciplining us with his word through his spirit so that we awake ourselves to the truth of who we are in Christ. Instead of going back down to the dungeon, to the one who is sealed up in the dungeon behind bars, Satan himself, and presenting our members to him for unrighteousness. That's not the people we are. So the call today is, if you know who you are, act according to your being. Isaiah chapter 51. Remember, we started at the beginning of chapter 51 last week. And this glorious section from 51 all the way through verse 12 of um, 52, which precedes verse 13 of 52, starts that fourth servant song. We have these commands that are sprinkled throughout. And last week, we looked at listen, 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 and one awake. And we saw in this whole section, there are three commands to listen or hear. There's an interlude by Yahweh himself where he addresses his people. And there are three commands to awake or waken. And then a final command to depart. And they're all double commands. They're all drawing emphasis. So last week, we were addressing the the first part of our thesis statement for all of chapter 51 and up to verse 12 of 52 where we witness six commands and an interlude demonstrating God's gracious provision of salvation to the world through his servant. God's gracious, six commands and an interlude demonstrating God's gracious provision of salvation to the world through his servant. Last week we saw, listen, my people, I will comfort you. And we marked that comfort. We heard this in Isaiah 40 just a few minutes ago, didn't we? It's what starts out the whole second major section of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort my people. That first 11 verses and, and, and past give us the overview of all of this section of Isaiah. So God says, Yahweh says, listen, my people, I will comfort you. I will bless you like I blessed Abraham. In other words, all the promises to Abraham are yours. And I will hold to them because I am a covenant faithful God. And I will restore you like Eden. Remember, he points them back. Points them back to what God has done in the past. And even with Eden in the garden, he says, I will restore you and it will be better than that. So already in the first couple of verses of chapter 50 or 51, we are are seeing a nod toward not just the release of captivity, That's there, right? We're going to see that, especially in today's passage. But we're also seeing the coming of Christ the first time to provide all the blessings of salvation, but also with a nod to the perfection that comes in the new heavens and new earth when the holy city Jerusalem, the body of Christ, comes down in the new heavens and new earth. So our minds are seeing multiple fulfillments here. One, for those people who are in captivity in Babylon and about to be released, and then seeing the Messiah and his promised coming and his coming again again to set up eternity in the new heavens and new earth. And we start that right in the first three verses of 51, and we will see that all the way through. The second listen that we looked at, listen, my people, I will save. And he tells them that their salvation, that his salvation will reach the ends of the earth. That's not a new thought for us in Isaiah, is it? His salvation has been brought over and over and over again, but it will reach the coastlands, the islands, the absolute furthest reaches of the world, symbolizing everyone in the world. My salvation reaches the ends of the earth, but it is also forever. It will not perish like the, like the, the mountains and, and all the things that are temporal. My salvation will be forever. Once I have saved you, it is forever. It cannot be lost. The third, listen, my people, don't fear men. And he tells them, you, you know righteousness and you know my teaching, but don't fear men. Men are temporary. They, they will pass away. But again, My salvation and my righteousness will last forever. Another one of the same, the section ends in exactly the same way. Then beginning in verse 9, we see the first of the awake um, commands that we see in this whole section. And beginning in verse 9, awake, awake, a double command. Awake, Yahweh, awake and exercise your might. Now this is the people commanding Yahweh to awake. The people are realizing, well, if all, this is, if all the things you want us to hear and to listen to are true, then we need you to awake and exercise your arm. And we've been learning uh, re- the, this progressive revelation in this section of Isaiah. The arm of God refers to what? 
is power, but specifically demonstrated in the suffering servant. It is the suffering servant who is his arm in this section. We've seen that progressively revealed, and we will see that. Just, just take a look with me where we'll head next week or the week after. Look at Isaiah 53 in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? And this is the servant song, the fourth servant song, the one that demonstrates his suffering more than any of the others. In this section, the arm, yes, it is the strength and power of God, but it is specifically revealed in his servant. So they're saying, the people, or Isaiah speaking on behalf of the people, awake Yahweh and exercise your might. And they look to the past as well. Save us as you did our forefathers in Egypt, and we will joyfully praise you. Remember that the exodus from, from Egypt, that it's constantly brought to us as, the, as the, the supreme Old Testament revelation of the arm of the Lord being revealed. And the people are constantly called back to remember what God did and not to forget that. And they encourage themselves with that kind of deliverance. And we're going to see that even brought forward again. Then in verses 12 through 16, we looked at Yahweh's interlude. And he says, I comfort and deliver you, though you have forgotten me and are afraid of your oppressors. Remember, he says, you, I have redeemed you, but you have forgotten me, and now you're afraid of men? And there's a question, it's almost a snarl, why are you afraid of men? I am your God, I am your redeemer, I am the eternal one. So he's reminding them, them of that. That's his interlude to bring us to our passage today, the second of the three awake, awake sections. So if God has told them, listen, I am redeeming you, but you've forgotten me, and that's why that you are afraid of men. And then he reminds themselves, he reminds them of who he is and what he's done in creation and, and that he is still their God. Now he has a call to them, doesn't he? They've called him to awake um, earlier in verse 9, they've called God to awake, but beginning in verse 17, Yahweh calls the people to awake themselves. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 through 23. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, there is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of Yahweh, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this. You who are afflicted, you who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says, your, thus says your Lord, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. I will put it in the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. That's a pretty strong statement in the midst of all this good news, isn't it? But that's the reality. God's people are suffering God's wrath in captivity because they violated the covenant and their God is a faithful God. He is faithful to the covenant that said, when you disobey me, I will curse you. And so they're there and he needs them to awake. You're crying out to me earlier, awake, awake the arm of the Lord. Remember last week, you're crying out to me, but you need to awake yourselves and look at your current situation. Your current situation is devastating. You need to see what is around you and look, look specifically at what he says. Awake, my people, awake, for I have delivered you. And this passage is divided into two sections. You have drunk my cup to the dregs, but I have removed my cup from you. Look there at verse 17. The command to wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. And then this picture of the Lord's wrath that is so prominent in Old Testament and New Testament and in, the, and in Revelation where God's wrath is depicted as a cup, like a cup of wine, foaming over with his wrath. 
and the idea of drinking that cup to the dregs. All, every bit of it, every bit of it until it is completely gone. It's a common way to talk about God's wrath and that language is right here. Look at it yourself in verse 17. He calls them Jerusalem and he tells them to wake themselves and stand up and then he describes them that they are the people who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering, all the way down, all the way to the bottom, all the way to the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is you, my people. You are in this situation. You need to awake yourself and rise up and realize that you were there because you have neglected and forgotten me. And then he describes her further in verse 18 by using this, this almost horrible symbolism. If it's, it's bad enough to have the wrath of God, but now you have no one even to lead you through it. Just think of the culture that they were in. The, the sons were those who were to take care of the parents. The sons were those who were to take care of the parents when they could not take care of themselves. And here, this description, which we have seen before already in Isaiah, remember, that, the, that Jerusalem is pictured as a, as a mother and she doesn't look around and see any of her posterity. And God says, no, they're all over the place. You need to open your eyes and listen. Here is the physical ramification of that. There is none to guide her, verse 18. Among all the sons she is born, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons she is brought up, the two things, so all of her sons, there's no one there to guide her. She's stumbling around. She's staggering under the wrath of God. And there's not even the sons who should be taking care of Jerusalem. This picture, this imagery of family imagery are there. We'll learn where they are in a moment, but look at verse 19. These two things have happened to you. And then look at what they are. I think it's devastation and destruction is one and famine and sword is the other. I think in context, that's what we need to look at for that. These have happened, devastation and destruction. That's representative of the city and the land, right? And famine and the sword, sword that, is, that is representative of the people, how they have felt the wrath of God against them because how many times have we seen this description in Isaiah that when God comes against the people, their land will be devastated, there will be famine, the jackals will come in and invade, and they will be the ones who live in the land, and the people living in the land will have to live out in the wilderness because there's no food in the city. This picture is being given, and he says, who will console you? Who will comfort you? You see the parallelism here. These two things have happened to you, devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will console you? Who will comfort you? Now that's the promise of this section, isn't it? Now if you are the people in captivity and God says to you, who will comfort you, where should your mind go back if you've been listening to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 40, verse one, right? God says, comfort my people, comfort my people, and he tells them exactly how he's going to do it, and it's all in his hand, it's not in theirs. It's his sovereign work to bring the comfort. But the people are so devastated, they're looking around saying, who's going to comfort us? And God is saying, who is going to comfort you in this mess? What earthly power can come in and take care of you in this mess? You see them already starting to direct their eyes up, already direct their eyes out of their own situation. Here in verse 20, we learn about the sons. Your sons have fainted. Now, that's not a good thing for a young, virile, healthy young man, is it? To faint, to be weak. And in the language of Isaiah, what does that mean? They're not waiting on the Lord. If you wait on the Lord, you will not grow faint. You will not grow weary. Remember? But the sons, they're not waiting on the Lord, so they have grown faint. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. Now, get a picture of this. At the intersection of every street is a pile of young men who have fainted. That's the picture. No one can even walk through the streets. All the people who should be leading and governing and pointing people back to God are laying in a pile fainted in the intersections of the street. And it's like they're in a net, a captured animal in a net. Wide-eyed, cannot escape, not, not sure what's going to happen, and nothing is in their control. This is the young men. Why? They are full, the second half of verse 20, look at it. They are full of the wrath of Yahweh, the rebuke of your God. See him again, lift their head up to the heavens. They have forgotten God 
And God says, I'm going to save you anyway. And he's reminding them, you need to be waking up and turning to me. I am your God. All the ones who can deliver you in human form, they're piled up in the street. All of this is that vivid imagery and pictures of God's wrath against his people. Now, we should, we should, we should park here a minute. If you, this morning, are outside of Christ... This is a walk in the park compared to the reality of the wrath of God. But God is a holy God. He is perfect in his character. He is perfect in his holiness. And if you have not come and put your faith and trust in Christ, then your faith and trust is still in yourself. And when you stand on judgment day, you will not be able to stand in front of this holy God. And this description of young men piled up in the streets in famine and destruction and sword and captivity, you will wish for that in the day of God's wrath on judgment day. So this is something that the Bible brings to us on a regular basis that God is holy and those who are outside of Christ, those who are standing on their own righteousness will meet his wrath if the wrath of another, if another person has not stood in their place to take that wrath. Now we're going to come back to this And I want you to feel this. Because even if you're a professing believer, I mean, just think of what Luke was talking about this morning where he gave the scenario of somebody who was repenting, but they were not repenting. If that is your life, and you're constantly living like the gospel isn't true, but you've got head knowledge, but it is not connected with your heart, this is where you will end if you are not fully trusting in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ, let's back up and use our biblical theology. Has the wrath, will the wrath of God ever touch you if you are truly in Christ? No, because it's touched another. And we'll come to that. Much fuller description in a moment. But there is such a thing as God's discipline, isn't there? And when we pursue sin and it's not checked and we are not confessing and repenting that sin, then God pursues us. Why? Because he loves us. And that pursuit, he can let us go until our life completely falls apart. And every consequence of every sin is right there in front of us. Because he loves us and he's bringing us back to himself. We serve a holy God. This idea of Jesus as our BFF, he is closer than a brother, but he's also the holy one of Israel. And so we have to make sure that we're not skipping over this and say, that doesn't mean anything for us. But there's grace, even in Isaiah 51, isn't there? Look back at your text. Not only you have drunk my cup to the dregs, but I have removed my cup from you. Look at verse 21. Therefore, isn't that wonderful? Therefore, because this is your situation, because um, that you're receiving the rebuke of your God, hear this. You notice he still gives them hope by saying the rebuke of your God. Not their God, but your God. I'm still the one who will comfort you. So hear this, he says, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. That's again using that imagery of the picture of the overflowing overflowing wine cup, the chalice. Look at this, how he identifies himself in verse 22. Thus says the Lord, that's Adonai, the Lord, that's Yahweh, your God, which is Elohim. Thus says Adonai, Yahweh, Elohim. He's bringing himself in his fullness in his names, is he not? He is the one who is powerful, Adonai, the one who has the mighty right arm. But he is also Yahweh, the one who is the covenant God. He is also Elohim. This is God in his fullness. And he's saying to them, hear this. Thus says your Lord. And who is the Lord? Yahweh, Elohim, who pleads the cause of his people. Who pleads the cause of his people. God has sent them into captivity for his disobedience, but he has promised to bring the remnant home, has he not? And he pleads their cause. There is vindication ahead. Middle of verse 22. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. Now, at that point, what should be going on in the murmuring of the people? There should be joy, right? This is about to end. Our God is going to contend for us. 
And it's, it's his wrath that we've been receiving, and it's his wrath that he is about to take away. And he says, you notice, it's, it's, it's him himself who is doing this. The sovereign hand of God is the one who will do this. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and you have made your back, and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. So he's talking about those who take them into captivity and all the enemies of God's people who will do things like lay them down on the ground and walk over their backs. It's another way of of saying they've got their foot on their necks. They're under subjection. There's no hope for them. They have to submit to these leaders no matter how evil that they are. They say, bow down that we may pass over on your backs. And he says, you yourselves have had to make your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. This is ultimate humility. And he said, those people that did that to you, I'm going to give my cup to them. And before you think, well, wait a minute, if he's going to take it from one people and put it on another, is he just like, I'm done punishing you, now I think I'll punish someone else. He's not doing that, is he? Remember, God is holy. Anyone who is not connected with God in the way that he says to be connected with him is his enemy. When God's people act like the enemy, he treats them like the enemy, but he never lets them go forever. There's always hope for them. This is the hope Jeremiah had when he read about the 70 years and he starts repenting. The first thing he does is repent on behalf of these people. He knows deliverance is coming and he knows that he needs to repent because this is the God before whom he bows. So there's hope, there's promise. And he says, and notice the language In verse 22, I have taken from you, from your hand, the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. It's already in the process of being taken away. So this is God speaking to his people saying, wake up and look at where you are and listen to me of what I'm saying. And this is what he's been saying all through Isaiah, isn't it? I mean, we've seen this in chapter 2. We've seen this in chapter 7 and 9 and 11. We've seen this over and over and over again from chapter 40 on. God is going to redeem his people. And so here this is no surprise, but he's reminding them, look where you are in captivity and look up. Your God is about to act. And then he turns. In the most glorious turn as he turns to chapter 52, he says, awake, my people, awake, for I have delivered you. And then in chapter 52, he says, awake, my people, awake to your new life. Now, here's where we have a full description of what these people can look forward to. And we're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to see it in the physical sense the deliverance from captivity, from Babylon. But we're also going to see that it is also pointing us forward the spiritual reality. Because remember, they can be delivered, but there is what? No peace for the wicked. It is their sin that needs to be dealt with. He's going to free them from captivity, but if they're free and still in sin, are they free? They're not. So he's going to begin to call them to awake to this redeemed life to awake to the salvation that he has brought. So he says, awake, my people, awake for your new life. Beginning in verse 52, the first thing he says is it is holy. Awake, awake, put your strength, put on your strength, O Zion. Now whose strength are they putting on? Their own? Where do their own get them? With their sons piled up in the streets. This is the strength in the arm of God that they called for last chapter, Right? When they called in verse 9, awake, awake, put on your strength, O arm of Yahweh. Now they're putting on his strength because he has worked. They're not working in their flesh any longer. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. So put on your beautiful garments. This is, this is the language that you can have a couple of images for. The, the image of a bride getting all gussied up for her wedding and putting on the beautiful garments. And we know that in that, in that day and in our day, the wedding day is for the bride. It's for the bride to be displayed. The bride reflecting her beauty, reflecting the beauty of Christ. But it's also the language of the priestly garments, is it not? Because in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 28, twice Aaron and his sons are told to put on garments and those garments are for glory and beauty. 
glory and beauty. Now, it's not for their glory and beauty. It's to represent the beauty and glory of the God that they are serving and interceding for when they step in, the, in, in between the people and God and God in the people. So put on your beautiful garments. This, remember, for them to put on those garments, what had to happen? They had to be consecrated. They had to be pure. They had to be ritually pure in order to put on those garments and do the work that God had called them to do. Then he says, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall be no more come into you the uncircumcised and unclean. Again, it's that priestly language that the uncircumcised and the unclean, those were the ones who were not ritually able to come before God. And that will never happen again in Israel according to this promise. Now, I want you to notice back in chapter 48, turn there, turn to chapter 48, the first couple of verses. Remember that when God calls them Jerusalem, the holy city, he's calling them what they're heading toward, not where they are. In 48, chapter, chapter 48, verse 1, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel... Who, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and confess the God of Israel, but, what? Not in truth or right, righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on God, the God of Israel. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Do you see that? This, they're saying the right things. They're doing the right things. They're calling on God. They're calling on Yahweh. They're saying they're the holy city of Jerusalem, but they're not doing it in truth or right. And now God doesn't have that qualification back in chapter 52, does he? He says, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Why is Jerusalem holy? What does Isaiah say from the beginning? Why is Jerusalem holy? Because Yahweh dwells there. It's Yahweh's hill. It's where Yahweh dwells with his people and his people come to meet him. It's the holy city, not because of the buildings and not because of the people, but because of their God who is holy. And so he reminds them, I am your God and you are my holy city. Now, when the captives came back, when the captives were released from captivity and came back to Jerusalem, were there still uncleanness in Jerusalem? In the first century and when all the New Testament is written, is there uncleanliness in Jerusalem? There is. When is Jerusalem the perfectly spotless holy city again? It's when he comes back and the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven in the new heavens and the new earth. And in in the new heaven and in the new earth, there will be no uncircumcised. There will be no unclean. The kings of the earth will bring their wealth, but there will be no uncleanliness that enters in. So again, you see that our, our ultimate eyes for ultimate fulfillment is when Christ returns and if it's when Christ returns, what has happened between then in Isaiah 50, 52 and but back then and when Christ returns, Christ comes the first time, right? And that's what all of this is pointing toward and leading us to. So the people will be holy, not because of them, but because of their God. And he has redeemed them unto that holiness. But secondly, they will be free. Look at verse two. Shake yourselves from the dust... And arise. Now let's just stop there. If they're laying in the dirt and their captors are walking over their backs, their noses and their mouths are eating dirt, right? And so this is freedom. This is a symbolic. Uh, this is the symbolic way of saying you will no longer be captive. Shake yourselves from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Now that's a little bit confusing in the ESV, right? Shake yourselves, arise, be seated. Well, what is it? Well, I think two things. If, it is, if, it, if be seated is the right tra- translation of the word, then it means shake yourself from the captivity, rise and be seated in throne because you are my people. Make sense? So the rising is from captivity. The seating is to ruling and reigning. But it also could be, the word could be translated so that it should be, the whole phrase should be translated um, captive. Shake yourself from the dust and rise, O captive Jerusalem. Loose the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That fits the parallelism, right? I don't know which is correct, but both are true, aren't they? Say yes. yes. Thank you. Both are true. 
We want to always look at the scripture and do the best we can to understand it, but sometimes the, the, the way the language is used and the obscurity of the words, we're just not sure. So we look and we dismiss things that would contradict other scriptures. Neither one of those positions contradict other scriptures, right? We will rule and reign with the Messiah. So if it's to, to uh, rise up and be seated, that is true. But also, he's talking to a captive people. Loose the bonds from your neck. That other way of just talking about complete subjection to your enemies. So he's saying, when you're redeemed, this is what you need to do. And you see the action they're to take? They are to do this. Why are they to do this? Because God has done it. And it gives you a picture. We're looking at it from the positive, but if we look at it from the negative, we can look at it from that way as well. Put on your beautiful garments means that where, where are they now? They don't have garments. They're definitely not beautiful. The holy city, they're definitely not the holy city, right? Because they've forgotten their God and God has um, placed his wrath upon them. He has put them out of their holy city. They're to put on strength. They didn't have strength before. That's why they called Yahweh to put on his strength. Shake yourselves from the dust. That means they were in the dust. You see, all of these, though they're promises to the positive, they all represent where they are and what God has done to relieve them from that. So they're holy and they're free, but they're also redeemed. Look at verse three. For, okay, so that opens our eyes, right? We want to see what, well, what does that mean? For, what was just said, you're now holy and you're now free. For, now we're going to get something. Are we going to get a reason for that? How that happened? A result? Something is connected here. For, thus says Yahweh, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Now remember, we've already had this idea, right? Where they were already in captivity and he said, where is your certificate? Where's your certificate of divorce? And to whom do I owe money? There was no money involved in this. You sinned. And our covenant said you would be um, sent into captivity for doing that. There's no money here. There's no, there, I am the one in control of all this. I was in control of you putting you there. I didn't pay anybody else, so I don't have to redeem you with any kind of money. And what does that tell us? It's all grace. God is at work, not the men and the women. You were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord Yahweh. Now, I want you to notice, I've tried to point out these names. Almost every time the Lord Yahweh is used, Adonai Yahweh, that, that, and in your versions, you would probably see God in all capital letters, that's Yahweh. Anytime it's all caps, it's representing the word Yahweh, yod heh in the Hebrew. This is when the power of God matched with the covenant promises of God are to be seen. Remember, we saw this in chapter 50, four different times when the servant was speaking about what his, his sender, Yahweh, did and said. He called him that four different times in the space of one, three, five, seven, nine verses. He called him that. And we're to see the same thing here. This is the power of God and his covenant faithfulness all wrapped undo, up into his names. And what does this covenant faithful, powerful God say? My people went down at the first, verse 4, into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. So there, now, now, that's what you wish preachers would do all the time, right? Take Israel's history and put it into just a couple of words. He went down to Egypt and the Assyrians got you for nothing. Done. Israel's history altogether, right? And that's what we're to hear. We're to hear. You, 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 you went down into slavery on your own, but I redeemed you. The Assyrians, they came after you. And look what it says. The Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now, we have already learned about all that oppression earlier in Isaiah, right? Remember all the kings and the battle of the Assyrians and, and the, the uh, northern kingdom being taken into captivity in seven 722, thank you, 722. I'm going to get these dates in your head one way or the other. So we learned about that already. And, and for Isaiah, that was just step one of God's people, right? For Isaiah, that was just the beginning. The northern kingdom taken into captivity, but the southern kingdom was also going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonians. So for him, it's all the same. God's people rebelled, and God was faithful to the covenant, and yet he is also faithful to redeem the remnant. And that's what we're seeing here. Verse 5, now therefore, what have I here? Now you can hear this. 
Well, what do I have here? I think that's the way it's intended to be read. What is it that we have here? You can just see the parents walking in on the kids, right? Lipstick all over the place or paint on the walls. Well, what is it that we have here, my little creative ones? And I'm not trying to put God in a snarky mode, but God is looking and he's saying, he's wanting them to see what is going on around them. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares Yahweh, seeing that my people are taking away for nothing? That's the reference to Assyria and also to Babylonia, the Babylonians. Their rulers wail, declares Yahweh, and continually all the day, my name is despised. Now, that's the crux of the issue, isn't it? Even though God has orchestrated this, when God's people are taken into captivity and their rulers are wailing and weeping, his name is drugged through the mud. Remember, that's, the, that's what the new covenant was promised to us through, right? He says, I am doing this not for your sake, but for my sake. Because when I am punishing you, the people, the, the, the enemies are blaspheming my name. Because they think their God is not powerful, and I am about to act. And look what he says here that he's going to do. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, verse 6, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. So we've moved, Michael, or whoever's moving the slides has probably moved with me here, into the vindication that's promised. So in verses 3 and 4, we see that they're redeemed. God is going to do the redeeming. He sent them into captivity, and it's his right to do with them as he pleases, and he has promised to redeem them, and he will, but they will also be vindicated. They will be vindicated. Why? Because God will vindicate his own name, and everyone will know. Everyone will know. He says there, therefore in that day, they, that is my people shall know my name, but it's also got the people who hold them captive in view there as well, that it is I who speak, here am I, this is God who does it. He's drawing attention to himself so that he gets the glory. So they're holy, they're free, they're redeemed, they're vindicated, but they're also saved. Look at verse seven. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. So you know this imagery, this imagery of the watchmen on the wall. And there are examples of this in Scripture where this happens, uh, like in 2 Samuel 18, verses 24 through 27, where the watchmen on the wall are looking for the messenger. And the idea is you see the messenger before you hear him. And the messenger is running with swift feet. The faster they're running, the, the, the rule of thumb is the more joyful the news. But they're coming, but you can't hear them. But then all of a sudden, the watchmen, they're listening. They're watching. They're listening. They're call attention. And they're listening. And all of a sudden, they start hearing... Our God, our God, our God reigns! Our God reigns! Our God reigns! That's what they're waiting on. They're waiting to hear the news of that messenger. Is it good news or bad news? And if it's good news, they're bringing not only the message, but they're bringing the evidence of its proof. And that's all the picture that is said here. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, that, that messenger that's coming. And what is his good news? Publishing peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes what? Salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. It doesn't matter where you've been and what captivity you've been in. He's coming. There is good news coming from our God. And your God reigns. Not the ones who have held you under captivity. It is your God who reigns. And then the watchmen, they lift up their voice and together they start to sing for joy. They see eye to eye. They're seeing everything the same in unity. And then when they turn to the nations, look at, or to the people, look at verse 9. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
That's the message of the watchmen that come from the message of the one with the good feet, the blessed feet, that God is acting on behalf of his people. And what is he bringing to them? He's bringing salvation, but how is it brought? Comfort. And what has been promised since chapter 40, verse 1? Comfort, comfort my people. Now it's actually happening. And they're thinking physical deliverance, are they not? They're thinking physical deliverance. We're finally free. We're finally free of this captivity. And they're praising God for all of this. And how has he done it? He's, he's, he's brought his holy arm, his strength forward. And it's before the eyes of all the nations. Again, we're back to the salvation being seen and offered to all the nations. But not only is there salvation involved from their captivity, there is protection Look at verses 11 and 12. Here we have our final dual command. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of Yahweh. So remember, when Nebuchadnezzar came in and overtook them, what did he do? He took the vessels and they gave them up willingly, right? The king of Israel gave them up willingly. Remember in Daniel chapter 5, is it, where Balthazar is having that big feast and he's, he is uh, uh, blaspheming the Lord by using the vessels from the temple? Now they, and this is from Cyrus's decree. Remember, we learned that several, several weeks ago. When Cyrus's decree, they are allowed to take those vessels back with them. Now those vessels need to be consecrated because everything that comes in contact with the Lord needs to be consecrated. We're still in this old covenant where, where these things are fully understood. So he's saying, depart from there. Depart from where? Babylon. Get out of there. Get up. Rise yourself up. And in your freedom and your salvation that I've given you, get out of there. Depart. And don't touch anything unclean. Prepare yourself to be reunited with God. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of Yahweh. Look at verse 12. For you shall not go out in haste. And you shall not go in flight, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, what is Israel, and what should we automatically be thinking about? What incident in Israel's history was marked by the fact that they had to gird their loins and get out with haste? It's the Exodus right around the Passover, right? You need to flee. You need to get out in haste. You need to waste no time. You need to take flight. This, this is different. Your God reigns now, not the gods who have kept you in captivity. So you don't have to leave in haste. Leave in a victory march. Leave with dignity. Leave with your heads held high that your God now reigns. It's the completely the opposite of the Exodus in Exodus chapter 12 and also recounted in Deuteronomy chapter 16 where the ideas of haste and, and, and quickness are involved. And actually this word for haste is only used in those three places. Here, in the Exodus, in, ex, in the book of Exodus, in its recounting, and in Deuteronomy chapter 16, the only three places those are used. So when you find that out, you look and say, well, this isn't used intentionally. Their eyes were faced back to the Exodus. Remember earlier? Rise yourself, God, deliver us like you did then. And now God is saying, you leave because I am your God. And you're not leaving like that, you're leaving in victory. And the God of Israel will go before you and be your rear God, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, where God is before them fighting enemies and in back of them fighting enemies. He's before them preparing the way. God is in control of everything. He is in full protective mode of his people. And that's part of the blessings of salvation. Now, I've kept bringing us back and forth with this idea of physical deliverance because that's all the language that's brought to us here, isn't it? It's physical deliverance. And those people that are in captivity would have, would have understood them being delivered physically. But all of them, because of their, their messianic servant focus, also are bringing us the spiritual realities of what God has done. Because God doesn't just sit up in heaven and decide, well, today I'm tired of punishing this people. I think it's time for a change of channels. I think I'll, I'll punish these people now. God is acting according to his character. And so if you think about the judgment that is brought and this cup of God's wrath, on what basis does God change any of this? If God's people are sinning and he is perfect and faithful to his covenant, 
They clearly have not remembered him. He's still telling them what they need to do and promising to deliver the remnant in spite of them. On what basis does he do that? Does, does he just set aside his holiness for that day? And so he sets it aside for that day and picks it up the next day so he can accomplish what I should have done a long time ago. No. God never winks at sin. There is one who drank the cup of his wrath, is there not? There is one who, who came for the purpose of drinking that cup. There is one who is working on behalf of God, is exercising that holiness that's required for sin. And God says this in his character in Exodus chapter 34, doesn't he? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is in God's character to forgive who he will forgive because they have come to him in repentance. How does he do it? There is one. The one who asked James and John, who had just asked, remember when James and John asked to sit on his right and his left hand? They're kind of full of themselves, kind of confused on Jesus' mission and what is going on, and how does Jesus respond? You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism by which, with which I am baptized? In the book of John, the one who told Peter, put your sword in its sheath, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In Mark 14, the one who turned the third cup of the Passover into into his supper, into the Lord's supper, by saying, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. The one who prayed in the garden, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There is one who drinks the cup. There is one who suffers the wrath of God and he is worthy to do so on our behalf because he did not deserve that. He was the one who was perfect, received God's wrath for those who will believe. So God is not capricious in this. God has a plan. And that's why all of this section leading up to the suffering servant and his shedding of his blood willingly and being despised by men so that the iniquities of many can be forgiven. This is why we're we're leading up to chapter 53. Our question is, God, how do you do that? And that's why 53 or 52 verse 13, the very next verse we'll look at says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. It is the one who did not deserve the wrath of God, who took it in our place, who will be lifted up and high and exalted. So if you are one who I talked to earlier, who is under the wrath of God, and the Bible says you are now under the wrath of God. If you are not in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in him, you are under the wrath of God right now. And you may say, well, that's not all that bad. I'm not really suffering the wrath of God right now. Well, that's because he's also a gracious God. And he's allowing you time to still repent and come to him. But the day will come where there is no time for that. You must put your faith and trust in Jesus, the one who presented himself to God, drank the cup of God's wrath, though he did not deserve it. He was the only one without sin. So that you and I who were sinful could have eternal righteousness and eternal fellowship with him. That's how God does it. God has done it because he has sent one to drink his cup of wrath. But also, we're holy now. We are holy now as well. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're not coming back to Isaiah. We're just going to look at a couple of passages and they will be brief. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This is where we come into the understanding of are we living according to the gospel? If we are those who have repented of our sins and trust in Christ, and there is this transformation, the transformation that Isaiah just told us about, that that now because God has acted, we're holy, free, redeemed, vindicated, saved, and protected, there should be outworking of all that in our life, right? If we are now holy in the sense that God is holy, even though we have sin, there must be something going on in our life, and it has to do with the day-to-day putting off and putting on, does it not? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, 
me find where I'm going to start here. Look at verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ. He's talking about those who walk in darkness. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. And the assumption is, yes, you are people who have done this. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then he goes on to talk about putting away falsehoods and not letting the sun go down on your anger and no corrupting talk coming out of your mouth and depending on the Holy Spirit and putting aside all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and being kind to one another. You see all the effects of putting the right garments on because they've already been put on in Christ. What we do is rip them off and say, I want to still pursue sin. And the Bible says, no, that's not who you are. If you've tasted this kind of truth, then you have the garments already on. So our holiness is pursued because God in Christ has captured us and changed us and made our heart from stone to flesh, beating after him and his laws in our hearts. And he's causing us to walk according to his statutes, all according to the new covenant. So yes, we are holy and our lives must be pursuing that and the world must see that. Our kids must see that. Our co-workers must see that. They must see us not perfect, but pursuing. You know the difference, right? We're not just automatically perfect where we never sin again, but we're pursuing Christ, which means we're crucifying sin because his righteousness is now credited to our account. So we've been equipped for that. In our salvation, the work of God had nothing to do with us. We've been equipped to pursue this holy life. But also freedom. It's freedom from captivity in Isaiah, but it's freedom from sin. Romans 6 tells us this, right? Because we are in union with Christ in his death and his baptism, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are freed from sin. It has no power over us unless we give it. There's presence of sin, but we're freed from the penalty and the power of sin in this life. Why? Because we're redeemed. Because of everything that God has done. Therefore, that when we get to the new heavens and new earth, we'll be clothed, clothed in the white robes. Remember, we see that in Revelation. In, in Revelation chapter 7, I believe it is, where the, the, the innumerable amount of people are gathered around the Lamb, and they are the ones who are in white robes that have that cleansed their robes in what? The blood of the Lamb. Those same image, the same imagery is used in chapter 19 when Jesus comes on his white horse and all of the army of heaven comes with him all clothed in white robes because they've been clothed in, cleansed in the blood of the lamb. This is the mark that we have been cleansed because we're pursuing righteousness. We've been set free from the captivity of sin. But we've also been vindicated, haven't we? We've been justified. It is God who has justified us for the sake of his own name. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 4 of Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. We have been vindicated, not because of us, but because of him. It has happened through Christ. You see the cleansing and the redemption brought in these verses as well. But we've also been saved. All of that falls under the idea of being saved. Uh, the, the, the imagery of the good feet used in Romans chapter 10, where we're where saved. Turn there. Turn to Romans chapter 10. We're going to turn to two more passages. Romans chapter 10 will be one. Because Isaiah 52 is quoted in Romans chapter 10. Verse 8. 
What does it, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's our vindication again. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what has what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see what Isaiah is talking about? You are the ones who bring good news. You are the ones running through the town saying, our God reigns and presenting to them Jesus Christ because they need to hear the word of the gospel in order to believe the word of the gospel. So our salvation leads to us being evangelists, doesn't it? Other people need to hear the same thing that we need, that we needed to hear, and we're joyful about it, and we're praising about it, and we go to the streets as the herald presenting the gospel. But we're also protected. Last place, 1 Peter chapter 1. We were there not very long ago with Buster, Remember in Ephesians, we have an inheritance that is in heaven. And that inheritance is protected by the Holy Spirit because we are wrapped up in the Holy Spirit. So there's protection. There is, there is this sovereign protection of our life until God is finished with us. Look at 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who, now this is you, this is us, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God will not let us go. Jesus will not lose any that the Father has given to him. We are protected until he's finished. Does that mean we won't meet death here, persecution, famine from sin that's in the world and God's judgment of it? Does that mean that? No, it does not. But it means that God is protecting us for the next life because this momentary light affliction compared to the glory that we will spend with Christ. So where do these things hit where do these things meet in your life? Where does the rubber hit the road for you? Are you one who pursues holiness? And even though you're not perfect at it, you are repenting constantly in pursuing Christ. Are you one who is, who is justified by faith, not your own works? And you're living as if you are. You're living as if you're justified by faith. I mean, Paul spent many verses in Romans and Galatians talk, defending justification by faith. And are we living as if we've been justified by faith or are we living by legalism that we're justifying ourselves and we're living in such a way that other people see a facade of us and they think, oh, how perfect and holy they are. Justified by faith means that it is faith in the Son of God who came and died for us. Are you the person who is preaching the good news because you've been saved and now you can't stop your feet from being beautiful and happy and running forward and screaming that your God reigns over all the gods of the earth and all the gods of the politics in the nations, that your God reigns and people will come to you to find out what on earth that means. Remember in chapter two, all the world comes to Zion so that they, they can hear how to live from Yahweh's mouth. So all the world is going to come in and see the people in the church and they're going to learn how to live because of your life and your mouth representing Christ. And are you the one who are living in this life fearless because you are protected until God is done with you? 
This is the gospel for us that should mark us out as a people that are strange in this world, that are weird in this world, that people, when they click off their nights at light, their lights at night, and they start thinking about their fears, they should remember your life and say, maybe I should need to talk to that person about what makes them different in the midst of this chaos. And it's all because God has redeemed us and his salvation is forever and there's no one that gives him counsel. There's no one that can thwart his will and we are his messengers. What a joyful task that Isaiah presents to us. You see why so many people want to say the title of Isaiah is the gospel according to Isaiah? It's everywhere in Isaiah. So the challenge to you is, let's live like this. Let's live these lives that cause lost people to come running to the messenger so they can learn about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us and your mercy to us and this constant revelation of your salvation. And as we move into this shocking but glorious fourth servant song, we pray, Father, you let us see clearly what this costs. For it is a joyful thing for us to live according to the gospel, but it was costly. Help us, Father, to understand and love Christ more as we look at this fourth servant song in the coming weeks. Until then, Father, strengthen our lives to be those that are heralds and pursuing holiness and trusting only in Christ and obeying your word and not having any trust in our own flesh. We pray, Father, that you would do this for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.